Hi folks, Patrick here. Welcome back to Bibliology. This is the podcast where I speak to Bible scholars and academic theologians about their recent research and its implications for communities of faith today. Today on the show you'll get to hear my recent discussion with Dr. Darian Lockett, Professor of New Testament at Talbot School of Theology at Biola University and contributor to the upcoming Kriegel Publications volume Five Views on the New Testament Canon. This is due to be released on the 18th of October, so if you want to pre-order that, or if you're listening after that date, check out the link in the episode's description. It is a really lively and yet cordial debate uh, between five scholars from various different Christian traditions on how we should understand the New Testament canon, historically and theologically, of course. And our guest today, Darian, specializes in the Catholic epistles, especially their canonical function. Um, also hermeneutics and history of biblical interpretation amongst other topics and so he's a formidable dialogue partner and I think you'll find this conversation very enjoyable if the canon of scripture is a topic that you sometimes like to ponder like myself. So without further ado let's get on to the show and I hope you all enjoy it. Hello Darian, welcome to the show, how are you doing today? Yeah doing well, very good to to be with you today. Thanks for the invitation. My pleasure. And um, I'm excited to get to talk about this volume you've uh, contributed to on the New Testament canon. And it's of course called Five Views on the New Testament canon. It's a interaction between you and um, a few different um, scholars with different opinions on this issue. Um, But before we get into the the nitty gritty of the, the book, I think the audience would love to get to know you a little bit personally with some Fun questions. You you up for that? Sure. Sure. So um, the first question I have is, of course, you're you're a, a Bible scholar, and um, if you had to switch your discipline of teaching and study tomorrow from theology and biblical studies to something else, what field would you choose, and why? Yeah. Well, m- my wife would say that I'm pretty boring, and those two fields are, you know, my my heartbeat, as it were. But uh, actually, I took a degree in history as an undergrad, uh, medieval history. And maybe that's cheating a bit because a lot of biblical studies has to do with uh, history, um, history and language. But if if I had to switch discipline, I'd probably uh, do uh, history. And uh, if I couldn't do ancient history, then um, I've always been, in, you know, uh, very interested in the history of the two world wars in Europe. That's uh, just sort of fascinating moment of time and uh, not done a lot of research there, but I've done a little reading and digging and learning about that time period. So perhaps uh, modern European history, something like that. Mm. It is a great field, but it's kind of, you're thinking, hasn't everything been said about the second world war that has been? <laughs> yeah, so yeah, exactly. I'm sure it's difficult to market something if you, if you publish it in that field, but um, that's, that's fair enough. Um, and um, another th- thing I was interested in uh, when I was um, reading up on you was that you've co-authored a Greek reader for the book of James. And so this seems to imply you have quite a high degree of proficiency in this language. Um, do you think you could hold a conversation with a New Testament author? <laughs> and why or why not? Yeah, that's a, that's a question where I'm just going to have to be transparent and say, uh, no, not at all. Uh, so um, that that little book that you're talking about is really a guide for uh, intermediate Greek students who are, uh, you know, continuing to learn the language and want to read James. Um, but as many moderns engage Greek, it's it's Koine Greek that I've engaged in. That's New Testament Greek, and that's not near, you know, Attic Greek or Classical Greek or something like that. And so. I think just by my paucity of, uh, you know, vocabulary, it would make it hard. I could have a really good theological conversation <laughs> about the topics that uh, the Pauline epistles or the, you know, Catholic epistles are focused on. But uh, if it's shooting the breeze about Caesar or something, well, uh, I think my vocabulary would run out pretty quickly. What about weather? Could you talk about the weather? With well, um, slightly, you know, a couple of weather-related terms in the New Testament, but I think I'd I'd, I'd fare much better on uh, justification or uh, something like that. Uh, so that's a that's a fun question, but I I, I have the desire to uh, absorb more of the language, uh, yeah. but that's the answer for today. <laughs> sure, sure, and of course you 
um, mentioned there the Catholic epistles, and that's kind of your um, specialty, um, so to speak. And these, for the listeners who don't know, these are basically the the epistles that aren't um, Pauline, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm wondering, is that kind of an unfortunate label that they've all been lumped together, you know? Um, and I'm wondering which which one of these writings do you think is neglected the most uh, by the contemporary church? Yeah, I appreciate you asking this question. I could talk about this quite a bit because uh, I love these texts. So number one, I would define the Catholic epistles, of course, the description there, Catholic epistles, just means general epistle or, you know, written to a general audience instead of like Paul writing to the Corinthian church or something like that. Um, but but historically, the Catholic epistles are James through Jude, and they don't include Hebrews, even though a lot of, you know, early church uh, voices uh, argue that Hebrews was not written by Paul. The, the letter of Hebrews circulated with Paul's letters, and maybe that's a discussion for another time. Uh, but so it's uh, James through Jude, the Catholic epistles there at the end of the New Testament. And it is unfortunate that they're called the non-Pauline epistles. I teach a class where part of the description of the class is that will focus on the non-Pauline epistles. And I take some time in class to say, hmm, this is probably not the best thing to say about these texts because we have two brothers of the Lord Jesus who are writing both James and Jude. So not, not to pit them against Paul, but just to say, to call the Catholic epistles non-Pauline probably is already giving them the short end of the stick. Um, So, and uh, I think that probably Jude, maybe also second Peter are two new Testament letters that have been neglected quite a bit, both in scholarship and uh, at least in my experience in the church. And probably because number one, they're so small, especially Jude, just 25 verses. Uh, But both of these letters, at least, in some circles, have been described as largely negative and not giving us any positive theology or positive, you know, kind of reflection on the one God. And I actually think that's uh, short-sighted for sure. Um, I think both of these texts are dealing with heresy, right? Second Peter, wrong teaching, and Jude, uh, wrong living. And so, therefore, there is some negatives, there's some denunciation, there's some uh, argumentation, if if you will. Uh, But that hides or papers over the reality that both of these texts are really concerned about theology. Second Peter, the coming of Jesus, the eschatological coming of Christ, and what that means for our lives today. If judgment is coming in the future, that means we should live in a certain way now. And then Jude, um, you know, very interested in unveiling the presence of a group of people who are living in a false way. Why? Ah, so that we can contend for the faith, so that this once and for all delivered apostolic faith can be defended in the church. So anyway, I think those two texts have a lot to offer. If I can give a plug for Richard Bauckham's uh, commentary, the word biblical commentary, uh, just one of the best treatments of those two texts. And um, so, yeah, a lot, a lot to learn from those two texts and and shouldn't just call them non-Pauline. Of course. And I think when it comes to Second Peter, I think another reason it's maybe neglected is that the kind of the elephant of the room is authorship when you discuss when you discuss it. So it's it's hard. It's hard to get away from that difficult topic when you're when you're reading it, if you have some sort of basic level of education, you know, in uh New Testament background, that sort of thing. You yeah, know. it's a sticky issue there. Probably the hardest issue of authorship to navigate in the New Testament. So, yeah, that is true. Yeah. It's it's and, got it's got some complexity to it. And we'll of course get on to that um, question more broadly in a, in a little bit in the later on in the conversation. But um, we'll get on to speaking a little bit about the um, the content of your book and. Um, sort of um, what it is and uh, appreciate you for, for taking part of this. Um, and I'm wondering with this book, five views on the new Testament canon, how would you briefly summarize um, the five perspectives in this book, just to broadly give the listeners sort of a context uh, for this discussion? Yeah. Thanks for that. First, I was grateful to be invited to contribute to the book uh, by Ben and Stan, Ben Laird and uh, Stan Porter, the editors And um, it's an interesting uh, collection of essays that are uh, 
you know, presenting different per perspectives yet interacting with each other. So it's that typical five views book where there's a main chapter to describe these five views, but then there are other chapters where we're interacting with each other's work. Um, and it's very interesting. So there are five views. So just to list them briefly. So there's the conservative evangelical view. That's the chapter I wrote. And then a progressive evangelical view, a liberal Protestant view, a Roman Catholic view, and an Eastern Orthodox view. Um, so thinking about the four other views, not my own, the conservative evangelical, we'll think about that in detail, I think, in some of these questions. But so the, the progressive evangelical view uh, written by Dave Neenhaus is um, um, thinking about how history or historical reconstruction, like trying to prove that these texts were written by these people in this time period, that gets in the way of the theological truth of the text. And so he he is moving in at least what the title is uh, given, the progressive evangelical view, where uh, canonization is kind of displacing composition. At least that's my view or take of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I agree with Neenhouse that we need to describe the canon theologically uh, because it's not just a historical document. It's a theological document. We have some convictions about what the canon is. I think that's right. Uh, but I think that he uh, pits theology against history and um, moves a little too far away from composition and some of those historical details. And, and also his theological understanding of the canon is defined by usage. So the theological importance of the canon is really how the church has used it. And I, and I think that understanding of the theology of the canon can be tricky and actually take us in the wrong direction. So that's, sorry, I'm giving a little critique as well as what, what his, his view is. Um, uh, th then the next view, the liberal Protestant view, um, that's my understanding of the, that chapter is um, coming from a very historical critical perspective. Um, uh, uh, Bedun, I think is how you say his name. He's, he's just arguing that we need to reassess not only the canon, but Christianity in general, from a historical critical perspective. Um, I think that this kind of sells maybe canon short a bit, because again, I'm, I've got a theological conviction that historical criticism kind of can't account for, because historical criticism uh, comes with the assumption, or at least I'm, I'm suspicious that historical criticism has the assumption of um, a universe where there is no miraculous, that there is no uh, divine interaction. And so for my understanding of the canon, I, I need to describe the, the divine human agency, right, uh, in, mm -hmm. in canon. And, and this perspective of the liberal Protestants perspective is, is not overtly thinking in those categories. And, um, and, and I just think that is not sufficient. History is necessary, but it's not sufficient. Why? Well, because the canon is more than just an historical document. Uh, again, that's a theological conviction that I have. And so um, there's where our two perspectives are, are different. I really appreciate some of the historical uh, work that he does in the chapter, but I just think it's incomplete because the text of, text of scripture is not only making historical claims. The text of scripture is also making theological claims. Mm. And if we rule those theological claims out at the very beginning, then, then I think we're just not understanding. Yeah. Before we get on to the, the Catholic and Orthodox perspective, it's interesting to me that the way you've described it, the progressive view and the liberal view are actually very, very different. Yeah. Even though like when I, when I originally like read the, the blurb on the back where it said, you know, um, progressive evangelical and liberal Protestant. I was like, wait, I, I thought those were the same things. But <laughs> yeah, that is an interesting observation. And 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 for me, and maybe we'll talk about this later. But that puts all the more pressure, really, on uh, the conservative evangelical and the progressive evangelical. How do they end up being different? I think they are in ways, but um, at least in this schema, um, as you just pointed out, the progressive and the liberal. Are, are really, really different. Mm. And so the Catholic and the, the Orthodox view then, those are the other two, so. Yeah, just briefly, uh, the Catholic perspective is, um, I actually really appreciated this chapter quite a bit. I 
appreciated all of them, but I found myself nodding my head quite a bit as I read Ian Boxhall's uh, chapter, The Catholic Perspective, and the idea that uh, the New Testament canon is complex, but there's an early consensus about the New Testament. I really agree with his perspective uh, there, and that the New Testament should be thought of as a collection of collections, and we might be able to unpack that a bit more later, but I really appreciated uh, that as well, his concern for apostolicity. In other words, the texts are written by apostles, uh, or at least communicating the tradition, the, the authoritative tradition of those apostles. And then Catholicity, these texts are you know, received by um, the whole of the Christian church. I uh, find myself in a lot of agreement with those concerns. The one thing that I, I find found myself, of course, uh, pushing back on because I'm a Protestant, uh, as I read the Roman Catholic uh, chapter, is just that he, Boxhall, is arguing that the moment of closure for the New Testament canon is Trent, um, <laughs> which okay. uh, uh, understand the church's role that he's uh, highlighting there. But um, you know that that's a, that's something I would push back against, and and you know maybe discuss a bit. The last uh, chapter on Eastern Orthodox perspective again, I appreciated uh, how he. Um, talked about the Holy Spirit's guidance of the church and the church's um, interaction with Scripture, with the New Testament. But he's he's actually you know moving beyond that to say that the church is constructing the New Testament. The church and tradition, you know, Scripture that is in tradition really can't be separated, um, and that Scripture cannot stand on its own without tradition. Um, now, again, I I want to talk about the the necessity of tradition and how the church is involved in the canonical process. So I definitely want to leave room to talk about that, but I'm not comfortable with that kind of language that the scriptures can't stand on their own without tradition. And I think this just then is, is highlighting again, a Protestant versus Eastern Orthodox uh, perspective on the church, uh, which of course affects how we think about canon. Um, so that's just a brief rundown of the uh, of the other views. Yeah, thanks thanks for that. I, those that was really helpful and you know, if if you had to say which which view you found yourself in agreement with the most what and the least what what would you say? So it's it's a bit of a toss up for me between uh, uh, the progressive evangelical view that that's Dave Neenhouse's view. I, I I know him pretty well and we've interacted on other occasions and our traditions, I mean, are evangelical, you know, we both teach at evangelical schools, and I really appreciate his critique of the historical critical approach toward the canon. So I think Dave and I would be in agreement over against, you know, chapter uh, three on the liberal Protestant view. So we, we share a lot there. But why uh, is where we then begin to disagree, like, or how do we describe the theology of the canon? And issues like uh, inspiration then is an issue that we begin to disagree on as well. So I appreciated it. I also really appreciated the Catholic perspective, though, or at least Ian Boxel's perspective, um, because I found him quite sober historically, you know, very, very uh, well-reasoned in some of his historical presentation of the development of the canon. And as I said before, his idea that uh, so I, I don't think it's original with him, but uh, his approval of the idea that the New Testament is a collection of collections. I, th I, I think that's right. That's how the New Testament developed. Uh, and it's actually part of what I argued in my chapter. So um, for different reasons, those two chapters come to the fore. I'm probably most resistant to the liberal Protestant view because of an appropriation of historical criticism that that I, I think can't bear the load that he's trying to put upon it. Um, and and I, I I suggest or I kind of reflect on, is that a methodological naturalism, you know, and is that type of methodology really sufficient? So I probably agree with that perspective the least. I have the most questions about the Eastern Orthodox perspective, though, and it's really because I don't know that tradition well. Mm -hmm. So uh, had had our authors the opportunity to sit down and chat with each other, I would probably be chatting with him most, because uh, just to learn uh, about the tradition more, so I could understand it. Yeah, I, I kind of knew before I asked the question that it would be the liberal Protestant view that was the 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 one you um, uh, were against. Well, not against, but the one you 
agreed with least because I suppose that's kind of just the natural um, evangelical position, isn't it? It's kind of almost formed in opposition to liberal Protestantism in many respects, isn't it? Yeah, and beyond issues of canon, there are other points of disagreement be- between those you know, perspectives and the rise of modernism and therefore the rise of a historical criticism uh, are great concerns in that uh, tradition. Though I want to be careful to say there's all kinds of things to learn from the position of appropriating historical research and historical, I would call it historical grammatical uh, methodology in our research in scripture. So I want to appreciate, you know, some of what he's doing in the world that he's operating in, but, but you're right. Those lines of distinction are pretty clear. Mm -hmm. And we'll um, maybe getting into some of the details um, something that fascinated me when when um, reading this this volume is just how central the figure of Marcion um, is uh, in the scholarly debate over the canon. And if anyone doesn't know who Marcion was, he was basically the, uh, would we call him the first heretic? Um, well, well, definitely one of the earliest ones, yeah. The first well-known one, we might say. Um, and uh, he, um, I, I think his big, big heresy was he thought the Old Testament God was a different, God than the God of the New Testament. So these are basically two warring gods, uh, something to that effect. And um, but but how, what like what's his significance for this debate? Could you could you briefly explain? Well, stemming from Marcion's you know, view of the God of the Old Testament being an evil creator God, and you know Jesus, the God of love, and uh, came to destroy him. You know that uh, flowing from that really is that Marcion rejected the Old Testament as you know emanating from this uh, uh, evil Old Testament God, God of warfare and of violence. And, and so because Marcion rejected the Old Testament, and, and then as he moved to the New Testament, Marcion only accepted the Gospel of Luke and then the writings of Paul from the New Testament because he saw so much Old Testament being taken up in the New. Um, so notice what happens. Not only does he have these aberrant views about uh, the nature of God in the Old and New Testament, but then that spills over into his use and understanding of uh, Scripture. Uh, so some older perspectives. Now, now this perspective is still alive today, but I would argue that this is an older, older scholarship argues than that that Marcion's act of selection and arrangement, right? So uh, selecting only you know Luke and Paul's writings and then and arranging those texts in a certain way. Is, uh, is kind of an example or forerunner to the development of the New Testament canon. Uh, so, you, so you have folks who argued in the last century uh, uh, that Marcion is actually establishing a New Testament canon, uh, and that any time we think about New Testament canon, we need to think about Marcion as a starting point. And I think that's fundamentally uh, wrong. That's a, a flaw. Uh, and, and misses the fact, actually, that Marcion uh, excluded texts uh, that he disapproved of, of course, in his quote-unquote canon. Uh, but he's uh, he's um, he's disapproving of and excluding these texts because there already was a, a collection of Christian books that he had to choose from. So uh, many folks are, argue now, and I think it's the right way to understand this historical uh, kind of evidence, is, is that is that there already was a received or growing New Testament canon, I would argue at least a fourfold gospel and Paul, Pauline corpus, that uh, Marcion is re- reacting against. Uh, and, and therefore, I think Marcion doesn't play as large of a role uh, uh, in canon formation as some argue. So I'm thinking of Hans von Kampenhausen, um, you know, writing in the 70s, uh, he he is reviving or at least, you know, continuing this tradition of Marcion being such a central figure in shaping how we should understand the development of the New Testament. But I, I, I think, I think that's wrong. Um, and there are several folks who have kind of uh, understood that Marcion had something to start with. And that's really what we want to look at. What did he have to start with? We see how mm-hmm. he went the wrong direction with it. Uh, but the canon, I think, predates Marcion in some fundamental ways, like I'm mm-hmm. saying, at least fourfold gospel and Paul's letters. So it's basically a question of 
well, what came first, Marcion or the New Testament canon? That's sort of the. That's 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 right. That's right. And and I I'm not. I want to be careful. I'm not arguing that there's a full 27, you know, book list of New Testament texts before Marcion. I'm not arguing that. But I am. But I am very much arguing that there's a fourfold gospel collection that's probably circulating uh, amongst churches um, before before Marcion. Therefore, uh, to say somehow that we must see Marcion as definitive in the collection of those four full gospels, that's that's the historical wrong way around. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And there are even those who would like go so far, I think, as to say that. Um, you know, this is, and this would begin into the the nitty nitty gritty, but like that, Luke's gospel was actually a response to Marcion's gospel, and yeah, right. that kind of thing. And uh, yeah, it is. Uh, it, it kind of feels more sometimes like hot takes scholarship than <laughs> anything. <laughs> yeah, there are certain critical assumptions uh, that would uh, push someone, or critical assumptions that would lead someone to date Luke in. To the second century and in a different milieu, right, in a different context uh, than, you know, first century, um, uh, you know, Luke being aware of other gospels having been written. That's for sure what's happening. But I think he's referring to Matthew and Mark for sure uh, when he, you know, is, is understanding that there are the gospels that he's interacting with as he writes his own. So I can understand why some critical assumptions lead you that way, but I don't think it's necessary. I don't think that's yeah. the only way to read the evidence. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, like getting to your own view, um, to what extent would you say the story of the canon, maybe you don't think it was um, sort of a direct response to Marcion, but like, would you say it was a messy and contested process or would you say it was more smooth? Yeah, so um, messy and contested from our perspective, but mostly because the lack of historical evidence or the lack of, you know, remaining fragments of information. The second century is kind of like a black box insofar as where are the manuscripts and where are the church conversations or just theological conversations among the church fathers about the canon of scripture. And we wish we had more information. And so we're really dealing with uh, fragmentary uh, evidence here. And so because it's fragmentary, it seems messy and contested. Um, so I, I don't know how to get on the other side of things to, to, to actually say, well, you know, this process, what this process was like in the first century, I, it's complex. I think that's the word that I would like to use, that canonical development, New Testament canon development is complex. And we can reduce some of that complexity, in my perspective, when we start talking about sub-collections, the fourfold gospel. When did Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, when were they collected together and when did they start circulating? That's an We can actually talk about that. Or Paul's letter collection. A little harder. I've spent some time trying to do this, but a little harder to describe. Well, when did the Catholic epistles as a collection come about? Again, why is that harder? Why does that look more messy? Uh, be, be, because we are lacking evidence, we're lacking information. Um, so is that a, a nuanced enough response? I think it's a complex, but it's complex because we're, we're dealing with ancient history here and we don't yeah. have lots and lots of information that we might like to have to help clarify. I, I, get, I get what you're saying, yeah. And I suppose one of the main ways we would try and work it out is based on what the church fathers are saying. Um, I, I suppose that's right. And but even that, I mean, even that is a little bit of uh, difficulty and nuance uh, because you see Theodore Zahn and uh, Ada von Harnack, you know, in the 1800s, late 1800s, arguing in German about, well, when you look at the fathers, um, should they, when they quote a New Testament text, should they say it's scripture when they quote it? Well, that's just not how the church. Church fathers quoted the New Testament. They were quoting it without a formulation that says, I'm about to quote scripture now. You know, here's, you know, Paul's writing. Um, so that's one complication with church fathers. Um, uh, but, but also, you know, we just don't have the church fathers talking to us at length about 
um, wh which texts should be scripture. It's really the use of those texts. And I, th I think, Zahn, uh, here's something I think we should recover from that conversation back in the 1800s, is um, uh, what texts were read aloud in Christian public worship in the first decades of the Christian church? Obviously, the Old Testament is being read. Uh, read. We, we get that from Acts, and we get that from early uh, fathers as well. Uh, but but what we also see uh, very early on is reading from the memoirs of the apostles, you know, these types of things, uh, uh, which is an indication that some of the New Testament texts were being read in Christian uh, public worship. And I, I think that's a fruitful um, kind of vein of, of research to follow uh, down. I think Zahn was right about that. Um, so anyway, even the church fathers are kind of complicated in terms of how they mm -hmm. cited New Testament texts and, and used them. You know, I think that's that's helpful what you're saying, just in showcasing how limited the evidence is. Um, and um, But you do come to the conclusion that, and this is what you write, the pressures that led to the formation of the Old and New Testaments were not exerted from the outside and were not manipulative of the texts themselves. Um, so is there like is there like positive evidence we can point to that would suggest that or is it more of a sort of a, a thesis um so to speak yeah so as i'm interacting with other you know scholars who are thinking about the new testament canon um the issue of the definition you know canon what do we mean by canon and then uh, scripture, what do we mean by scripture? So, so this phrase is within that section of my essay where I'm talking about uh, the overlapping character of canon and scripture. So my, to, to flag up, one of my concerns is that if we define canon as a closed corpus, 27 texts, uh, then we actually can't talk about canon until the fourth century uh, because it's in 367 uh, with Athanasius's um, Easter letter. That, that's where we, at least one data point where we get a 27 text New Testament. And I, and I think that's unhelpful uh, because I think we can talk about canon, especially because I want to argue that, that canon isn't just a fixed list. Of texts, um, it's also a um, uh, it's like the the rule of faith. It's a, a canon doesn't only mean set list, uh, but it also means uh, like rule rule of faith. Uh, um, and and it basically, what we have are texts functioning as scripture as canon early in the church's history. So the gospel of Matthew is functioning authoritatively in Christian in Christian churches uh, from a very early time. It is canonical in that sense because it has a certain authority uh, and it's functioning as scripture. So, I, so number one, I just want to argue that those two concepts overlap and that we can talk about canon earlier in the tradition. Uh, and what I'm saying here is that the formation of canon uh, did not come about because of external pressure. Uh, and so, number one, that means there isn't just one bishop at one time who decided these are the texts in the New Testament. So Athanasius is actually a very important data point for us, uh, but he's not making a decision out of thin air. He is receiving a group of texts that have already been functioning in the church for uh, you know, a couple of hundred years. And, and so, therefore, I'm trying to say that the, the canonical formation of the Old and New Testaments, here talking about the New Testament particularly, di didn't come from a particular bishop or a particular apologetic concern. There's Marcion. It's, you know, the New Testament canon didn't come about because of heretics like Marcion. Uh, it's really important. The, the canon does really important work at a moment when a heretic like Marcion comes about because we need an authoritative set of texts to refer to, to know what is right and what is wrong teaching. Uh, but Marcion didn't create the canon, or the problem of Marcion wasn't the, you know, the initiating moment that brought canon or the need for a New Testament canon about. That process was already happening beforehand. 
And what I mean by the second phrase, then we're not manipulative of the text themselves. I just mean that changes were not introduced into these texts in order for them to become canon. Instead, I think what we see historically is that, or I'm going to argue that I think the church is receiving uh, these texts and acknowledging them for what they already are. Um, So this doesn't deny that texts are sometimes uh, in their transmission, uh, their text critical issues come up in the transmission of texts. So there's an introduction of a phrase by a scribe, uh, often through error, uh, and, and we can kind of parse those out. Uh, so something like First John chapter 5, the Johannine comma, the, the addition there in, in uh, John 5, that seems clearly a, a later scribe who has a theological concern about the Trinity, who introduces a phrase into the text, but that's, that's clearly later uh, and uh, clearly not a part of the uh, originally penned text of First John. Of course, we don't have that, and so we are through scholarly means, through textual criticism, trying to, de- to discern what the original text of First John uh, was. Mm-hmm. But my comment here that uh, the Old and New Testament texts uh, are canon, not because of external pressure, nor were they manipulated uh, to, to become canon, it is just that. In the canon, the process of canonization, um, uh, we, we don't see some external pressure being put upon the texts or changes made to the texts so that they would become canon. I, I, I want to acknowledge, though, that they're, depending on the, the, the text, there could be a long and complicated history of how that biblical text came to its final form. And so mm-hmm. I'm kind of relying on the work of a scholar named Brevard Childs here who uh, has made these insights regarding canon, that on, on one hand, he's an Old Testament scholar, so he can say something like, on one hand, when we're looking at the Pentateuch, when we're looking at, you know, Exodus, Exodus had has a long history uh, uh, as it was orally communicated first by, you know, uh, ancient Israel, and then written down at a particular time, and then even after its writing, you know, Deuteronomy is a good example of this, you know, um, the Mosaic author, uh, writes Deuteronomy, but at the very end, there's a bit about Moses's death and how does that get in there if Moses has died? That's a later, you know, redaction, and there are different ways of thinking about how that redaction came about. But that's I'm trying to balance those two insights. That texts mm-hmm. do have a history, and some of that textual history is textual criticism helps us see additions and interpolations and. Um, uh, but I'm arguing that these texts come to a final form, right? We're we're not still monkeying around with Isaiah. Uh, we're not we're not we're not still adding things to these texts. They've come to their final form, and the church received those texts in their final form as canon. And that process, that canonical reception and development process, was not external, uh, and it wasn't manipulating the texts in that sense to become canon. Is that clarifying a bit more? That, that definitely does, yeah. And uh, I think that that answer really helps to elucidate your view um, quite a bit. I would like to to switch gears a little bit to uh, to talk about um, another question that surrounds canonicity, um, and that's the question of um, authorship and and pseudonymity. And we were mentioning this briefly earlier, but you know, perhaps you could explain, you know, how the, how these things relate, why, how does the, how does the question of authorship relate to canonicity? And, um, you know, do you think your thesis is compatible as well with pseudonymous authorship? Yeah, that's a good question. And it does relate to what we're talking about, you know, just previously about, namely that um, one of the biblical books can go through a kind of process of development and and later redaction by someone who wasn't the original author. So these are these are related to each other. Um, first, I would say this, that canonicity is linked to issues of authorship, even in the ancient uh, time frame, uh, because of the issue of apostolicity. In other words, New Testament texts are received as canon for one reason, uh, because they are written by an apostle or an associate of an apostle. And, and that 
throughout the tradition seems to have been a concern and other chapters in the book uh, raise this issue as well. Both the Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox perspective raise this issue as well, that apostolicity, um, uh, a text is canonical that is one that is written by an apostle. Now, I actually like Ian Boxall's chapter because he nuances this notion of apostolic authorship. And he and he argues it's not just being authored by an historical apostle, but it's uh, but it's also, or even more importantly, communicating apostolic teaching. Um, and so this is where your question is, you know, at, getting at this room between, well, is it possible for a New Testament text to be written uh, and share the apostolic perspective, right? The apostolic true teaching about Jesus, but not have been written by the person uh, the text claims to be written by, right? So yeah, Second Peter is the quintessential example of this. Second Peter purportedly is, is written by Peter. And in fact, the first verse describes him not only as Simon Peter, but the older manuscripts say Simeon Peter, which is his Aramaic version of his, um, of his name. Uh, and if a text is claiming to have been written by somebody, but that claim ends up being false or deceitful, the theological problem is, can such a deceptive text then be inspired? Can such a deceptive text be canonical? Uh, and if it's deceitful about its authorship, what else is it deceitful about? That, that usually is the way uh, theologically to uh, consider or to reflect on the, the difficulty of uh, pseudonymity in, in the New Testament. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I personally think that authorship of like Peter is difficult historically, um, but for the best of my ability, I kind of land with Jerome here. He argues that uh, first and second Peter were written by two different secretaries, uh, and this might account for the difference in their vocabulary and all this type of thing. And I, I think that it's likely that those secretaries weren't just um, taking dictation from Peter, uh, I would argue that these two secretaries basically were just given the task, go write the letter. And they wrote the letter almost as a literary agent. They're writing on their own. Mm -hmm. and then I think they come back to Peter and say, hey, is this what you wanted? Um, and then Peter signs off and, and sends the letter. So I actually still think even, even though somebody else is writing second Peter, a, a secretary is writing second Peter. Um, the secretary is writing on behalf of Peter. And so Peter's authority still stands behind that, you know, I, Simeon, Peter, uh, in, in chapter one, verse one. Mm. So I, yeah, you, you hear me saying that I'm uncomfortable with pseudonymity in the new Testament, uh, for theological reasons. Um, second yeah. Peter is the hardest historical case to really reflect on because there's so much doubt. And some of that doubt is very early. Yeah, I, I can definitely see where, where you're coming from with the whole idea that perhaps these texts were included because of their their apostolic um, authority. Um, so that could be a function of their canonicity, but something that caused their canonicity, so to speak. But um, I also, you know, something I th I think is, you know, you can you can go back to somewhere like the there's that classic verse in the story of Joseph where where he says, what you intended for evil, God intended for good. Mm -hmm. And so I think that can definitely be a, that verse can kind of give us a theological perspective to think about pseudonymity as well. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I definitely agree that God can take uh, broken and even evil things that humans do and use it for his glory. Um, historically, it gives me pause though, because there's evidence that the early church did not receive known forgeries. Um, and in fact, uh, Serapion, a bishop, you know, comes along and finds a group of Christians using the gospel of uh, Peter. Uh, and particularly, this is objectionable because um, it's a, a pseudonym, right? Someone has written in Peter's name and, that, and that's rejected. So I, the, the one little bit of nuance I want to give here, though, is that 
So uh, Richard Bauckham has actually made an argument, very interesting argument about authorship of Second Peter, that Peter actually didn't write Second Peter. Someone else wrote it in his name, but that the author used a particular kind of genre, a kind of writing that everyone would have known uh, that 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 the claim to authorship in Second Peter wasn't a real claim, that it's a it's a literary fiction. Um, and, and that's just not a kind of writing that we usually read these days, uh, but it's a kind of Jewish writing called testamentary literature. And that's a very interesting argument that helps, I think, navigate issues of pseudonymity and issues of canonicity with, with this really difficult text. Mm-hmm. In other words, if Richard Bauckham is right in his argument, the author of Second Peter, though not Peter, was not intentionally uh, producing a forgery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and therefore, the claim of deceit uh, doesn't hold. So that's a that's really interesting. I know that's not what we're talking about at this point, but yeah. it's a it's a very helpful way of maybe thinking about pseudonymity in a New Testament and and canonicity. Mm-hmm. And do you think like the conversation on the New Testament canon does it nuance how we understand the ideas of biblical authority and inspiration? Do you think those are those are related issues? Yeah, I, I, I do. Um, so on one hand, uh, as I'm writing in the conservative evangelical slot here, I, I do have a theological conviction about inspiration. And, you know, from my comments, that's probably pretty clear, namely, that I believe that the New Testament documents are, are humanly written texts, but divinely, you know, instigated, right? So there's a divine human uh, connection in the composition of these texts, uh, that's a pretty standard conservative evangelical view about about uh, inspiration. Pretty now, standard, pretty standard Christian view in general. Well, correct. I I know that folks have other views of that, but yeah, that definitely is my perspective for sure. And so, thinking about canonical development in the New Testament, though, has pushed or stressed my understanding of inspiration in the following way. So I definitely believe that when these texts were composed by their historical authors, that in that moment, God was um, carrying them along and that that's a divine human uh, moment of agency. There's human agency and divine agency in the composition of these texts. Now, something I'd want to say further, though, is that God didn't stop working once you know, the last period was affixed to the end of the text. Uh, God continues to work in the transmission and the spread and the preservation and even the collection and arrangement of these New Testament texts. Uh, So the, the question is, should we call that inspiration as well? In other words, inspiration usually is reserved just to talk about when an author is writing a document. So that's like uh, word making, uh, divine human word making, that's inspiration. Uh, what about divine human canon making? In, in other words, divine human moments of collection and moments of arrangement, because I actually think the canon is authoritative that you can't add to or take away from this list. Um, but, but does that mean that the canonical process was also inspired? Uh, I have some good friends who argue that, that yes, we should extend inspiration to include the canonical process. I'm reluctant to do that, um, but I'm not quite sure what to give, what label to give that, right? It's at least providence in God's providence. The collection and arrangement of the New Testament is happening and God is providentially superintending that process. But do we have a dogmatic or a theological word to describe that, like inerrant, uh, like I'm sorry, inspiration? Inspiration is how the spirit works in writing the text, and illumination is how the spirit works in our interpretation of the text. So, what's in between? Mm. Uh, canonization usually canonization is a description of some historical process, not a theological, you know, divine process. So I'm at a loss. What word do we use for that providentially, you know, um, overseen activity of canon producing? Mm -hmm. 
so I'm, I'm answering your question, but it's really answering your question with a bigger question. Yeah. What, you know, what do we call that precisely? And I'll follow that up with another question <laughs> because <laughs> it, it seems, I'm wondering, it does your hesitancy to consider the canon making process inspired, does that come from your commitment to Sola Scriptura, the, the idea that it can be scripture alone that is authoritative? Yeah, in short, no. I don't think it's Sola Scriptura that is um, making me pause there. Uh, because I'm, though I'm a Protestant and, and I hold uh, to uh, you know, evangelical Protestant views about inspiration, um, I do think that the role of the church is important. Um, I would be very careful to say that the role of the church isn't creating the canon, but receiving the canon. And the church's reception of the canon is a necessary process of canonization. So I'm not afraid to talk about the role of the church in the development of the canon. I, I think it's actually quite important to do that. Mm -hmm. um, my concern with applying the word inspiration to the process of canonization is, is more just the theological precision that inspiration has traditionally, at least my understanding, I'm not a systematic theologian, but my, my understanding from systematic theology is that inspiration has been particularly used to describe divine human composition, divine human word making. Um, we're moving into a different area when we're talking about the collection and arrangement of texts. There could be some editorial activity in that. So there is a little bit of word making going on. So maybe I would say inspiration overlaps whatever this canonization thing I'm trying to talk about, but they're not concentric circles. Mm. And, and my concern here is for precision. Whereas I can acknowledge inspiration and whatever it is I want to call it, canonization, this theological canonization process, they they overlap, uh, but but they're not exactly the same thing. They're not concentric circles. Just like I would say, inspiration and illumination aren't the same thing. Um, when the Spirit illuminates the interpretation of the text, we're not creating new texts, um, even though we might say those are related because the spirit is involved, the church is involved. Um, so uh, yeah, more to be, you know, determined here. Uh, this is yeah. maybe a research project to think about. Maybe someone out there wants to pursue this, but uh, it, 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 this is niggling to me. <laughs> what, what to call this thing here and how to describe it precisely theologically. But, but what I really want to say is I think something's happening there Theologically, divinely, God is in, uh, in involved uh, providentially in the collection and arrangement and uh, transmission of the New Testament mm -hmm. canon. Therefore, we should read these texts as authoritative. There's how it fits with biblical authority. And we should read just these texts as authoritative, not others, right? So not the Gospel of Thomas, not, you know, uh, an, another text, um, and so, yeah, if any academics are watching and they want to, uh, to undertake that project, send an email to Craigel Academic, and I'm sure they'll there we go. Yeah. you out. Just yeah. let me know what you do with it. I want to. I want to know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> right. What you were talking about there about illumination, I think there have been some theologians and kind of the more neo-orthodox and maybe even progressive um, camps that would actually say that that is inspired because doesn't Karl Barth he says that the Bible becomes the word of God so yeah that seems to be kind of uh, maybe what you're hesitant about in some respects yeah yeah and you can tell that I'm coming from a very you know conservative evangelical uh, perspective on understanding inspiration and illumination how I'm defining them and 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 you're right in in kind of a neo-orthodox view of scripture uh, one can one can argue that uh, the text is, it becomes, as it were, the, the word of God in our reading of it. Um, I, I don't want to uh, insinuate that this is David Neenhouse's view. Uh, something similar, though, in David Neenhouse's uh, chapter in this book, he does talk about how the, the texts of the New Testament become canon when the church uses them as canon. Mm, that's uh, that's kind of like... Yeah, that's defining canon as use. 
Um, and I, I'm, I'm not just reluctant. I would push back against that. I don't think that is when the texts become canon. I'm trying to argue uh, that they already are canon when they are composed. Why? Because they bear ontologically in of themselves, they bear this characteristic of uh, divinely inspired because God is, um, you know, God is inspiring the writing of these texts. Uh, and, 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 but, but I want to argue that the canonization process is still important. So if I can set up the table like this, I argue composition and canonization are important. And what's happening in between them is the canonical process. Um, my perception, and I could be wrong here, but I think uh, is Neenhouse is arguing that really the composition end of things is less important canonically. And it's the canonization, and that is defined as when the, te- when the, the church begins using these texts as scripture, that's really the moment that we should be thinking about. I, I want to both. I think they both keep each other in balance instead mm-hmm. of maybe being a bit imbalanced. Yeah. Um, we're co- coming towards the end of our time uh, here today, and this has been really fun to to discuss these things. And um, um, it's great. It's great that you have um, you have a lot of good answers and you also have some areas where you're like, I don't know. <laughs> and sometimes it's it's OK to go like, I don't know, isn't it? Before we uh, close, I, I do have another question, and that is that, you know, well, I know you're hesitant to talk about canon in terms of like closure. Um, we still, you know, we Christians believe that the canon is now closed. But like, but why? Like, why can't we, we write yeah. the Third Testament today? You know, that's a great question. And just to clarify, uh, I am only resisting the scholars that define canon only as closure that that's the concern i have mm-hmm. i definitely think the canon is closed um, <laughs> and the question you ask well why if if i'm nuancing the front end well you know canon isn't just closure it's also this rule of faith you know um well then how do you argue that the canon is closed so here's what didn't happen i i don't think that there was one moment of official closure Uh, where some authoritative bishop or someone in the church said, you know, voila, the the New Testament canon is now closed. They definitely didn't because French didn't exist as a language yet. (laughs) (laughs) Of course, of course. Uh, And so when Boxhall argues that, you know, at Trent, that's when this official closure happened, that just points up the real problem here. Which moment are you going to point to for official closure? Uh, Protestants, Catholic, and Catholics are going to argue and, and very much disagree about this. Um, I would argue that the New Testament canon is closed. Well, why? I look back at the canonical process itself. I think that there are a series of what I might call many closures. Namely, the fourfold gospel collection is closed very early on. When those four texts were copied and put into one codex, one book, and it began circulating around Christian churches, never in the manuscript tradition do you ever see a non-canonical gospel circulating alongside of one of the canonical gospels. That is giving me indication of closure. There are no other canonical gospels. The Gospel of Thomas was not being confused with the four canonical gospels, at least as the manuscript evidence helps us see. Similarly, we've got a bit of a process, but Paul's canon of letters uh, are closed in the first century as well. We, we do have some evidence of a, you know, smaller Pauline collections, you know, 14 is the number that we would say today, but there's a 10, that's Marcion. Um, but, but I think Marcion comes up with a 10 letter Pauline collection because he's reacting to what was already a larger Pauline collection. Now, you know, uh, uh, there's, there's evidence to, you know, argue over there, but, but I think that's how I would describe we Christians do believe that the canon is closed. And I think the the canonical process helps us see that there have been many closures. The gospels are now closed. No more gospels. Paul's letters now closed. Um, There's a little bit of a different historical trajectory for the Catholic epistles, 
And the issue isn't what texts would be added to them. The issue is what texts would be subtracted from them. So in other words, our second and third John, part of this canonical collection. Um, is second Peter part of this canonical collection? Well, at the end of the process, they are. Uh, but but they come to a closure. Um, and, and we can look back even further to the Old Testament, the prophets, and all the way back to the Pentateuch. There was a closure there. There's a there's a um, a Torah uh, that Jesus even refers to the Torah uh, and the the prophets, the Torah, the Ketubim, the Nebiim. There are there are a series of closures where we see these canonical sub collections, as I would call them, c- coming to uh, a close. And there, I think we should have confidence. Yeah, the canon, the canon is closed, and and we ought not to be looking not only for a third testament, but even something like Third Corinthians. Um, uh, or the letter to the Laodiceans, right? You know, Paul talks about this letter that we don't have any longer. Even if we would recognize that or find that text today, and somehow we were able to definitively historically argue that this is from Paul on theological grounds, I would argue, shouldn't be included into the canon. Why? Uh, Because that text hasn't functioned as canon for the last 2,000 years for the church. I believe, again, God's providence has preserved the texts that we need, that the church needs. And I, I know that's a theological confession, uh, but but th- that is the primary reason why I would argue not only should we not write a Third Testament, but we shouldn't accept, you know, Third Corinthians or something had it, you know, been found uh, because it hasn't been functioning as Christian scripture for the church. We'll end that with an amen then. Um <laughs> <laughs> so um yeah that that those are those are all my questions so um yeah greatly appreciate everything um you've you've had to say and uh thanks again for thanks again for coming on oh yeah my pleasure uh thanks for the invitation it's been a lot of fun to talk about this and i hope the i hope the book is helpful and um you know it's the, the, just because the book is written in there these five views doesn't mean that we're done here there's there's more to think about uh more to explore but hopefully this book at least is making a contribution to helping us you know clarify what, what we mean by the new testament canon 